It's an awesome privilege to be able to minister here at People's Church. Um, I spent a lot of my formidable years in the Oklahoma City area as a young man. Uh, matter of fact, my mom during the summers would drop me off at uh, Whitewater. That was my daycare with a season pass to Whitewater. Is it, is it still open? Is it st- yeah, it's still open? Wow, it's old because I'm getting old. But it's, uh, that's been a long time ago, 25 years or more ago. And uh, so it's been a, uh, it's a treat to come back home. But what makes it even more special is to have the opportunity to be in relationship with your pastor. Uh, I've known him for a long time. The favor of God has blessed whatever he put his hand to. And that has been evident in the ministry here at People's Church and uh, for me to be able to be here today is an honor just to hang out with him, but for him to trust me to share with you today is a high honor. Um, I, I'm a pastor, so I don't leave my church that often. I, I, I don't like being away from my family. And so I tell a lot of folks no. But when you get an invitation from a pastor like Herbert Cooper to be in relationship with people like the folks at the People's Church, uh, you don't say no to that. And so this is, a, this is worth me being away from my family, both my wife and kids, and uh, my church family today. And I just pray that us being together adds value to your life and pushes you closer in your relationship to Jesus Christ. I want to I challenge you today with two questions. And the temptation will be to think that these questions are insignificant. But let me say this. How you respond to these two questions will determine the trajectory of the rest of your life. Here they go. Number one, do you trust God? And number two, can He trust you? Don't be too quick to rush past those simple questions and think that this preacher has come here today to waste your time with elementary stuff. It's easier for you to flippantly say to me, Pastor, I trust God, than it is for you to actually trust God. You're going to have the rest of your life to prove the answer to the second question. Can he trust you? You see, I want to live my life in such a way that when I come to the end of this journey and I stand before him as my judge, I want to hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Another way of saying faithful is saying trustworthy. Well done, good and trustworthy servant. Can he trust you? The end of your life, the end of my life will tell the answer to that story. God is looking for someone that trusts Him enough to be trusted. People all over the world are living behind invisible bars held captive. They're trapped by greed and fear, worry, pride, and distrust. The key to freedom, the antidote, the way out of a trapped life is wholehearted surrender, reckless abandon, and complete trust. The antidote to the imprisoned life of distrust is to be a man or woman that trusts God enough to be trusted. History has proven that anytime God gets ready to break into our world in an unprecedented way, He searches the earth to find some vessel that is trustworthy enough to be a conduit of His kingdom assets, His kingdom power, and His kingdom purposes. That kind of man and that kind of woman often becomes the catalyst that God uses to change the course of history. When I finally understood this from reading the scripture, I started to pray this prayer. God, make me a man that you can trust. 
When God was ready to break into Noah's day, he gave Noah the ridiculous mandate of building this massive boat for a flood that was coming. And, and Noah took this ridiculous step of faith and obeyed God and built this boat while the sun was still shining before the rain clouds had ever gathered. He probably looked foolish following God's command. He was probably made fun of, but he listened, he obeyed, he didn't argue, he trusted, and God broke into the world. When God was ready to break break into Abraham's world in an unprecedented way. He challenged Abraham's trust by asking for his most valuable possession. He asked for Isaac, the promised child, and Abraham didn't argue. He marched to Moriah and laid Isaac on the altar. When Joshua inherited the congregation of wilderness wanderers, the church in Israel, Moses had been the leader, he's gone. And now this young pastor leads them to the Jordan River on the brink of entering into the promised land. Joshua could have trusted past methodologies. He could have trusted all the way it used to be. But he shirked tradition and followed the unique commandment of God in his life he had the priest wade out into the water until the waters of the river Jordan parted and the nation of Israel walked through he listened he obeyed he responded and God miraculously parted the river David could have trusted in Saul's armor but instead, he went beyond the logical, the tangible, the explainable, and he did the unexplainable and trusted God to slay his giant. In each of these cases and in each of these situations, God was asking these men, do you trust me and can I trust you? Will you build a boat while the sun's still shining because you trust me enough to believe the rain is coming? Will you turn away the metal and the armor that is conventional and will you use a slingshot and a stone to fight the greatest enemy of your life because you trust me in every case he asked these leaders do you trust me and he was trying to find out in those challenges do they really trust him and in every case these leaders trusted God enough to be trustworthy they are our spiritual heroes because of their complete trust and uncommon obedience to God God was ready to break in and do something supernatural in their time he intervened because they were trustworthy but his intervention was predicated on their ability to trust him in the first few verses of Proverbs chapter 3 the writer of scripture shows us this principle that the promises of God are conditional the promises of God are contingent on our willingness to be obedient to his command Listen, watch this pattern, this motif that follows through. Verse 1, my son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace will be added to you. The command is in verse 1, the promise of length of days, long life and peace follow contingent on your obedience to honoring his law and obeying his command. There's a command and there's a promise, but the promise does not happen without your trust and your obedience. Watch with the next eight verses, command, promise, command, promise. Verse number two, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. That's the command. Here's the promise. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Verse 5, here's the command. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all of your ways acknowledge him. Here's the promise. He will direct your paths. Verse 7, 
Here's the command. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Here's the promise. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. The scripture is laced with promise. But the doorway into those promises, the doorway into that favor is obedient to the commands of God. I want you to see how trust and obedience are intricately woven together when it comes to walking in God's favor and in God's promise. The level of your obedience indicates the level of your trust. You can say, lip service, that you trust God. But if you don't obey Him, you don't trust God. Obedience is the litmus test of your trust. My daughter is nine now. When she was much younger, she was a little baby, a toddler, um, I could see her walking up high on a ledge or on the counter, and I could say, come on, baby, jump to daddy. And she would go beyond her hesitancy because she had an unwavering trust in my inability to fail, and she would put the risk aside obey my command and she would jump it became so fun that she wanted to jump off of higher ledges and higher ledges because she was innocent to the reality that I could drop her so much so that as life went on and the ledges got higher I would see her walking and my intention was don't jump but before I could get that out of my mouth she saw me catch eyes with her and she's done this all along in her mind I cannot fail and she jumps she puts her life in danger she threatens to harm me because she cannot imagine that her daddy has the ability to fail. Now she is 9 going on 18 and she don't think I can do anything right. But before she wisened up to my weaknesses, before she wisened up to my inabilities to fail, her innocence led her to trust me enough to take leaps of faith. While I may fail her today, friend, your heavenly Father will not fail you. He has no vulnerabilities. He has no weaknesses. He can be trusted completely. And we reveal our trust in Him as we walk in obedience to His commands. The hymn writer generations ago understood this when he wrote the old song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You see this theme woven all through Scripture in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. We're not going to read from there today. I challenge you to note it. Go back and read it in your devotional time. There are three different historical incidents where those stories reveal to us that trust and obedience sets miracles in motion. 2 Kings chapter 5 uh, there is the story of Naaman, the leper, who dipped in the river Jordan seven times and was healed of his leprosy. There's a backstory. Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Syria, a high-ranking official, a man of great authority. He had done military exploits in many of his battles. He had taken a little girl as a prisoner of war, put her to work in his home, and she was serving his wife. In the process, he gets leprosy. The little girl becomes an unwilling missionary and says to him, there is a prophet in Israel that can heal your leprosy. He listens to her, goes on a journey all the way to Israel. When he gets to Elisha, Elisha sees him and says, I want you to go dip in the river Jordan seven times. The man of authority and position and pride says to him, where I come from, the rivers are cleaner than the Jordan River. You think I'm going to dip in this river? And his military men gather around him and say, sir, just do what the man of God says. 
He eventually did. He dipped in the river seven times and he was healed. Here is a man who was trapped by his own pride, his own position in life. But ultimately, he trusted in the Word of God and his obedience set his miracle in motion. His trust and his obedience was the catalyst for his miracle. Chapter 4 has another story. It's the story of the widow of one of the former prophets who had died. And when the prophet died, he had a great deal of debt. And because of his debt, the creditors have now come. They're going to take the widow's sons away from her and make them work off as prisoners their late father's debt. The prophet comes on the scene and says, what can I do for you? She tells him the story, and this is his command. Go borrow vessels from your neighbor and bring the... Don't get a few. I mean, get every empty vessel that you can possibly find. But I only have one vessel with a little bit of oil. It doesn't matter. You go borrow every vessel you can. And this woman, in trust to the Word of God, in obedience to the command of the prophet, she obeyed that irrational command and set a miracle in motion. God put a window in the oil business and provided for that woman and her sons. In chapter 3, there is an alliance of three kings that have gathered underneath the army of God to do war against God's enemy, Moab. They and all of their animals are in a valley. They were without water. They're dying of starvation and thirst. And they go to the prophet Elijah, who is with them in the valley. And they said, pray that God will give us water. When Elisha prayed for water, this is what God said. If those men want valley in the water, tell them to make the valley full of ditches. If they'll make this valley full of ditches first, I'll make it full of water later. Here's the plague in the church. We got a lot of water wanters and not enough ditch diggers. We got a lot of folks that want a shortcut to a miracle. They want an expedited journey to a breakthrough, but they don't want to pay the price of alignment with God by obeying His command. And God's word for us today is the same as it was for them. If you want your valley full of water, then make your valley full of ditches. In these case studies, one of them was trapped by pride. The other was trapped by debt. The third was trapped by an enemy on all sides dying of starvation. In each case, distrust would have prolonged their imprisonment. Eventually, it would have led to their deaths. But somehow, they found the capacity to trust God, obey in the face of adversity. They listened to the word of the Lord. They walked in obedience, and it led to their freedom. Here's the pattern. Trust, obey, miracle. Trust, obey, miracle. In almost every miracle that Jesus performed, this same pattern follows. You look. Think about the miracles you know of that Jesus performed in the New Testament. And in every one of those miracles, there is a request from him before he performs the miracle. He gives the recipient of the miracle a trust test before he releases his power. What did he say to the lame man? Take up your mat. And when he did, he was healed. What did he say to the man with a withered hand? Stretch forth your hand. When he did, he was healed. What did he say to the blind man in John 9? Go wash in the pool of Siloam. What did he tell the lepers in Luke? Go show yourself to the priest. Did he need the priest to heal the lepers? No. Did he need the water to heal the blind man? No. But he was testing their trust by their willingness to obey his commands. This is what he was asking. Do you trust me? Secondly, can I trust you? If you have enough 
faith to walk in obedience and trust me, take up your mat, stretch out your hand, go wash in the water, go show yourself to the priest, then I can trust you with the miracle. Do you trust God? Can he trust you? The same is true in Lazarus' case. They can't raise a dead man, but they can move a rock. I can't heal a blind man, but I can splash around in the water in the pool of Siloam. Here's the principle. You do the natural thing, God will do the supernatural thing. You do the possible thing, God will do the impossible thing. If you do what only you can do, trust and obey, God will do what only He can do. Heal, save, deliver, restore, provide. Trust, obey, miraculous. Trust and obedience sets miracles in motion. The only promise in all of the scripture that is not contingent on our obedience is the promise of God's unconditional love. I mean, you can try to make God quit loving you and that won't work. He's going to keep on loving. That's the only promise in all of the Bible that is not contingent on your obedience. Even God's forgiveness in your life is contingent on your obedience. Look in Matthew 6, 12. It's the Lord's Prayer. Listen to what He says. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. If you forgive your debtors, then God will forgive you. That's a conditional statement. Luke 6, 37. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Listen to this. Forgive and you will be forgiven. That's a conditional statement. If you walk in obedience to the command of God to forgive those in your life that don't deserve it, then God says, I'm going to release my forgiveness in your life even though you don't deserve it. Your obedience to His command sets the miracle of forgiveness in motion in your life. Several years ago as God was challenging me in the area of trust, I believe the Holy Spirit gave me an idea. I took, in order to illustrate what God was doing in my life, I took 10 blank pieces of paper, I stapled them together, I made the front page the signature page of a contract, and I wrote in big letters, yes, Lord, and at the bottom there was an X line with a signature line and a date, and I signed it and I dated the contract, and the remaining nine pages were blank. The signature page was on the front. That's different than what it is when we do business with man. Because when we do business with man, the signature page is on the back for a reason. We want to know the small print. We want to know what we're agreeing to. We want to know what we're signing up for. We're probably going to have our lawyer read it three times because we don't trust anybody when it comes to dealing with man. So I intentionally put my signature page on the front page when it came to dealing with God. And I intentionally left all nine pages that came after it blank. And I said, here's my yes, Lord. I don't have have to know the small print. I don't have to know what's on page 7. I don't have to know what's coming in the future. You don't have to lay it out for me step by step. I'm willing to trust you. I trust your nature. I trust your character. I trust your plan for my life more than I trust myself. So I'm telling you without ever knowing the future, I say yes without even knowing the details. It takes that kind of trust to be the man or woman that God can write, rewrite the course of history with. Before you can ever trust God at that level, you have to be convinced in the deep recesses of your soul that God is trustworthy. The revelation of God's trustworthiness doesn't come in your life when everything's going just right. The revelation of God's trustworthiness is forged on the inside of you in seasons of adversity. 
We sing a lot of songs about mountaintop experiences and we preach a lot of sermons about breakthrough and victory and, and the mountaintop and we spend most of our lives struggling to try to get from one mountaintop to the next and when we do, we overlook the deep theological truths that weight us in the valley. We overlook some of the deepest experiences in life because that are forged in the valley. If you scan a mountaintop on a mountain range, look at it. There's no life up there. It's snow. It's rocks. No trees grow. There's no life there. You want to know where life is? Life is in the valley. The grass is green in the valley. The animals graze in the valley. The flowers bloom in the valley because life is forged in the valley and our trust in following God is forged during seasons of adversity about five years ago I went into one of the deepest valleys I'd ever been in in my life I found myself pacing the hallway of Medical City Children's Hospital in Dallas my 15 year old son now was 10 at the time he had started having spots all over his body we rushed to the pediatrician they told us that he probably had leukemia They sent us to the children's hospital and the oncology department there said it is not leukemia. It is another rare blood disease that threatens your your son's life. That sent us into weeks of a hospital stay and treatments that, that just did a devastating, had a devastating impact on my son. It broke my heart to watch this unfold. In that wee hours of the night pacing the hallways of that hospital, the Holy Spirit began to whisper to me, my care is constant. I am trustworthy. Nothing is going to touch your family that hasn't first touched me. The valley that you're in in this moment did not take me by surprise. When you said yes on that contract, I knew that this struggle was in the following pages. I knew that pain was in the picture. This tragedy does not mean I am disengaged from your life. It doesn't mean I've gone on vacation. It doesn't mean I have blinked for a split second and left your life vulnerable. Brian, I am as much in control of your life in the seasons of tragedy as I am in the seasons of triumph when we were released from the hospital our church began a 21 day season of fasting I entered into that fast along with many others around the nation that were praying for my family and on the 21st day we had a miracle service in our church and many people prayed and believed for miracles for uh, many things but obviously the focus was on my my baby and At the end of that time, there was a special move of the presence of God. My 10-year-old confessed to feeling the power of God. On the 22nd day, we had a doctor's appointment, and there was this, this, uh, this anticipation that God was doing something. And when they drew his blood and we went through all of the tests, the news we got back from the doctor that day was the worst news we had received to date. When the doctor left the room, my little 10-year-old son was sitting on the edge of the bed and tears started running down his face and he said in desperation, Daddy, how can you not eat anything for 21 days? People all over the world that know you are praying for me. Our church fasted and prayed. I felt God touch me last night. Why is it worse now? I've got three theological degrees. One of them is an earned doctorate. And I can answer deep theological questions from theologians easier than I could answer the questions of injustice from that little 10-year-old boy that day. I just said to him, Caden, trusting means that you walk in places when the lights are out. Trusting means you follow even when it doesn't make sense. 
God isn't a Santa Claus or a genie that we approach with our list of wishes. And if he doesn't come through the way we want him to, it means he's not God anymore. That's not the case. He's holy and he's sovereign. He cares about our needs. He hears our cry. And trusting him in this struggle looks like asking this question. What can I learn from this mess? Instead of asking, why am I in this mess? And I said to him, Caden, you cannot let this sickness define you. You've got to let your faith define you. You came into this diagnosis as a little boy, and if you choose to trust God, no matter what, you will emerge from this as a man. And I know this is heavy stuff for a 10-year-old little boy, but do you understand what I'm saying? And he said, I understand, Daddy. I really didn't believe it. I heard his words, but I, how can he really understand? The next day in the hospital, I'm working a little bit, catching up on email, and I got a notification that somebody had posted on our family's Facebook page, and I thought, well, Haley's busy. I hadn't done that. Who is that? And I, I looked on, and Caden had gotten internet access from his hospital bed, and he posted, this is Caden. The platelet counts, and the diagnosis is worse than it's ever been, but I'm learning how to trust him. A familiar proverb to those of us that have been around church all of our life is in Proverbs 18.10. It says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. We spend a lot of time on verse 10, but we miss the truth in verse 11. Verse 11 says this, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. Those that trust in the Lord run into His name for safety in the times of adversity. But the self-reliant trust in their own ingenuity. They trust in their own creations. They trust in their jobs and their retirements and their health and their education. And they put all of their hope in those things. And inevitably those human creations will ultimately fail them. But those who trust in the Lord run into Him as their refuge. He is their strong tower. He is their safety you can trust him because he is trustworthy God began to challenge me as a young pastor your pastor and I crisscrossed the country as itinerant preachers sharing some similar events but when I was 25 I was asked to come pastor in my home state in Pine Bluff Arkansas and and uh, I the church was a predominantly white church and a predominantly African-American community. And, and when I challenged the elders there that if you elect me to be your pastor, this church is going to begin to reflect the community that it resides in. You better be okay with that. They elected me. We began that journey. I didn't know a lot. I was 25 years old. This was a storied and history church. And I, I didn't know anything about the church is in a financial situation because of, of a, a, a builder had lied to the church, stolen the money, and the church had to pay for the same building twice which left them an extraordinary debt in a relatively uh, struggling uh community uh, with blue collar folks and single moms and it was an uphill battle. I didn't know how to read a financial report. All I knew at 25 years old was that black was good and red was bad and all we had was red. 
I'm driving down the road one day complaining to God because he brought me here. I came here in direction to his command and I'm telling him this is his problem, not mine. I'm having one of those whining fits before the Lord, you understand, while I'm, don't look at me like you're holy. I know you, you do the same thing. And that's one of the privileges of when you're walking in obedience to God, you can put a lot of stuff back in his lap. When you wind up in a mess after obeying him, it becomes his battle to fight. And that's what I was telling him. I'm here by obedience to your command. And in that prayer, I said, God, even if I gave up my salary for an entire year, it wouldn't make a dent in the indebtedness of this church. Let me give you a little hint. Don't give God any suggestions in your prayer life. He doesn't need any help with suggestions because he'll use them against you. No, but if you gave up your salary... I could teach you how to trust me like the prophet by the brook Cherith. I fed one prophet with ravens. I'll feed another one. And you don't know that part of me because you never had to really trust me. Your grandfather's generation lived during the Great Depression. They prayed in their next meal. And one of the reasons the power and manifestation of the presence touched this nation during their generation is because they had this innate ability to trust me. But your generations had everything handed to them on a silver platter and it stunted your spiritual growth and given you an inability to walk in faith and to walk in trust if you will choose to go without a salary for a year I will lay manna on the ground I'll bring water from a rock I will break poverty mindset over your people I will prove myself to you as Jehovah Jireh it will be an opportunity to establish a miracle in that city when I went home to my wife and told her about this conversation the two of us laughed like Abraham and Sarah when they heard they were going to have Isaac at a hundred years old She was pregnant with our daughter. There's no way. But after some time and prayer, we felt like we have to. We don't have any option. This is the mandate of God. Trust Him. So we sat down and began to budget. That's funny because you can't budget zero. (laughs) A budget begins with an assumption that you got something to start with. So we changed from a budget to what we're going to do without She's going to learn how to cut our hair. We're going to get rid of this vehicle, cancel our cell phone, get rid of our home phone, cancel the cable. And it became amazing in that perspective. Everything we thought was a need all of a sudden became a want. And God was stripping us down and teaching us how to trust Him. And it was in that season He showed Himself to me. One day a Lowe's truck starts backing down the driveway. My wife looked over at me and said, We ain't got no money for you to be ordering no power tools. I said, I didn't order no power tools. He's got the wrong address. I ran out there to tell him he was at the wrong house. He said, is this the Jarrett residence? Yes. I have a delivery for you. I said, what is it? He said, it's a commercial deep freeze. I said, what am I going to do with the commercial deep freeze? He said, plug it in. I didn't have anywhere in my house to unload it, so he went around to the back, unloaded the deep freeze. I went in. Haley said, what's that? I said, a commercial deep freeze. What are we going to do with the commercial deep freeze? Plug it in. She sat out there that afternoon with one kid on her hip and a baby in her belly. I had the other kid on the, uh, my hip, and we we're looking at that deep freeze like it was alien rose in the corn. Why is it here, and where did it come from? 
Two days later, I got a phone call from one of the wives of an executive of the Tyson's Chicken Company in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Pastor, uh, they've been talking in a board meeting and they've asked me to call you. They've heard about what's going on in our church. Tyson's is very engaged in what's going on in our community. Those leaders have heard about the struggles in our church and the acts of faith that are going on among our people. And they want to provide a year's supply of chicken fingers and meat and fish and steak for your family. But they want to know before they have it delivered, do you have anywhere to put it? I found out later that a senior adult woman named Mildred had got up in the middle of the night and God spoke to her. I talked to her later and I said, Mildred, what were you doing up in the middle of the night for God to tell She said, Pastor, old people go to the bathroom all night long. <laughs> and she said, I was up on one of my many trips. I wasn't praying or nothing. And the Holy Spirit said, buy your pastor a deep freeze. She said, I argue with God. Why does he even need a deep freeze? She said, this is what I heard the Lord say. Mildred, your pastor's trying to teach you how to trust because there are unclaimed miracles happening all around you because people won't listen and they won't obey. Just do what I'm telling you to do. So she stayed up and prayed till Lowe's opened. She called Lowe's the first time at oh, first thing in the morning. She ordered a deep freeze. It was delivered to my house 48 hours before a year's supply of meat showed up, totally unconnected. When I tell you about Jehovah Jireh, it's not about a God I read about or somebody else's story I heard about. It's a God I met, the same God that can lay manna on the ground like dew in the morning and bring water out of the rock for the nation of Israel can provide when you trust and obey. Now listen, I didn't go to living without a salary from zero to 75 miles an hour and trust overnight. I grew up in the home of a single mama who gave her tithe week in and week out. And when I was away from God, I just challenged her, Mama, we don't have enough money to pay our bills and you're giving 10% to the church. Her response every time was, I'd rather live on 90% under the favor and the covenant of God than 100% without it. And because she embedded that in me, my first job after I'd come back, come to the Lord in genuine relationship with Jesus, I paid a $14 tithe check. And it went on from 16 to 17 all the way through college. And that journey of learning how to trust God began with walking in obedience in the tangible areas of giving back to Him. There's only one place in the Bible you are given the prerogative to test God. Because your trust is elevated when you put Him to the test when it comes to the tithe. Malachi 3.10. Bring the tithe into the storehouse. Command. Here's the promise. See if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out blessings you cannot even contain. Friend, I believe He's faithful. And He's trustworthy. You don't believe He's trustworthy? He stepped out on no place. He reached into nowhere. He grabbed nothing. He flung nothing across nowhere. Told it to stay there. And it did. You can trust Him. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, that which was, that which is, that which is to come. He's the bread of life, the bright and morning star, the counselor, the chief cornerstone, the door, deliver, elect, Emmanuel, everlasting Father, the hope of glory, the I am, the lily of the valley, the light of the world, the master, the Messiah, the mighty God, the prophet, the propitiation, the rabbi, the rock, the rose of Sharon, the root of Jesse, the son of God, the seed of David, the word, the one. Wonderful. He's Jesus and He is trustworthy. You can trust Him. The question is, can He trust you? 